The Claremont Claws were up 14-3, to and six of those points had been run in by my son, Brandon. It was his first high school football game. I was feeling good, up there in the bleachers as the halftime show started. I had the whole night off. My boy was kicking ass, and the first hints of May and Autumn were in the air. I reached into the pocket of my sweatshirt to warm myself up a bit more. Linda, my wife, elbowed me when she saw me pull out the flask. Oh, relax, I said. I'm off duty. No, I mean pass it over here. I grinned, looked around, make sure nobody was keeping tabs on the Claremont chief of police, and took a quick slug. Then I passed the flask to Linda, on the down low, as Louis the Lobster took to the field. Louis was the team mascot. When I'd gone to Claremont High, he had been this big, fuzzy, stuffed animal type thing. But a few years ago, some kids got into the basement and tore the thing up during the offseason. So they'd rebooted Louis and ordered a new suit. And this one was more realistic looking and more menacing. Louis had an angry lobster scowl now, and his claws looked like red mouths filled with lumpy teeth. Both versions were ridiculous in different ways. I thought one being way too goofy and one being way too serious. But then I didn't get bent out of shape about it like some folk did. It was a high school mascot. Nothing to get worked up about. Down on the field, Louis was doing his best to do just that. Get the crowd worked up. He was waving all ten arms around and snapping his claws like crazy. In addition to the cosmetic makeovers, the new suit also featured some animatronics, though there was still a kid in there doing the bulk of the work. Noah Fletcher, his name was. I didn't know him before that night, but I later did some research on him. He was just a kid. An awkward kid who spent a lot of his time online, and who didn't have many friends at school. People were surprised when he auditioned to be Louis, and even more surprised when he nailed the audition. He was a dork, Brandon told me after the incident. But like, a cool dork. You know, he, he didn't look down his nose at us, and he tried. He tried. And that made him cool, you know? Like, he, he didn't just sit there and feel sorry for himself. He got in that suit and danced his ass off. Halftime was wrapping up, and the crowd was egging Louis' antics on. After another hit of whiskey, I was doing the same. Up on my feet shouting, Get him, Louis! Rip him to shreds! That was when Joel Clements stood up from his seat in the third row and began climbing down the bleachers. I noticed him out of the corner of my eye. I had a run-in with him the year before when I'd pulled him over for driving 15 miles per hour in a 45 and found a half-smoked joint he'd hastily tucked into the crease of his seat. Now he was probably just going to grab a snack from the concession stand, stricken with the munchies. I was off duty, so that wasn't my concern. But something made me turn a little more in his direction and watch him. Some instinct that drained the warmth of the booze out of my body and left me feeling cold. Joel walked down to the bottom row, but instead of turning left to go to the concession stand, he turned right, making his way toward the 50-yard line, where Louis was winding down his show. I stopped clapping and reached down to my side for the gun. It wasn't there, of course. It was down in my truck in the parking lot. And what was I doing anyway? Reaching for my gun because some kid was a little too high and couldn't find his way to the boiled hot dogs? At a dang high school football game? Gary, said Linda. What is it? Huh? I turned to her. 
She looked a little scared. You've got your cop face on. What is it? Oh, uh, nothing. Just saw some stoner and wanted to keep an eye on him. Make sure he didn't get himself hurt. I nodded back over in Joel's direction and saw him hopping over the little fence down to the sidelines. Then I knew that something bad was going to happen. Hey, I shouted, but it was no good. The crowd was applauding Louis's performance, and I got the sudden unshakable feeling that even if Joel heard me, he would have enough stopped. He was on a mission, which meant that I had to be, too. Joel stepped out onto the field, and I started shoving people aside, making my way down there, too. But I never had a chance to get over the fence before he pulled the gun out from the, the back of his pants, leveled it at Louis, at Noah Fletcher, and fired three times. As I left the fence, the applause in the stands turned to panic screams. I hit the ground running. Louis was on his back, spasming, his giant claws reaching up to the sky, opening and closing. Joel brought the gun to the side of his own head, and I crashed into him an instant before he pulled the trigger. The shot went up into the twilight sky. I was on top of Joel then, pinning his arms to the ground. He looked at me with swollen red eyes. A grotesque smile twisted itself into shape on his pale face. I did it, he said. I punched him hard across the side of the head, and then he was out of it. Louis, I saw, was also out of it. Maybe forever. The fierce lobster had stopped snapping his claws. Some of his limbs were still waving around, but I knew that was only due to the hidden mechanisms. At the station, I locked Joel Clements in a jail cell and sent our dispatcher, Assistant Darlene, telling her to get some rest and that I'd man the phones. Then it was just me and the kid still unconscious in the building. I sat in my office drinking black coffee by the pot and sent Linda a few texts letting her know that everything was under control. It wasn't. I switched between the video feed of Joel tossing and turning in his cell, burning with some kind of fever, and the series of texts I had received from Bud Greenleaf. Bud and I had gone to school together, and he was with the EMTs who'd lifted Louie, Noah, still in the costume into the ambulance that had wailed its way to the 35-yard line a few minutes after it was called. The text said, Damn, Gary. The kid is dead. And he died a long time ago. Doesn't make sense. He's decomposing. What happened? What the frig? Can you come follow us? Meet us at the hospital. Come. This isn't right. I'd been dealing with other things, like a panicked crowd and a murderer. So I, didn't hang it. so I didn't even have the resources to look at my phone as the texts were coming in. But once Joel was finally in his cell, I read them uneasily and responded. I'm tied up here, bud. We'll send some guys. I radioed into the three men I'd left at the football field. The four of us together were the entire Claremont Police Department, and told them to send two to the hospital and report back. Through the monitor, I saw Joel stir in his cell. I left my coffee in the office and went to wish him a good awakening. Why'd you do it, Joel? Why'd you shoot Louis the Lobster? Some kind of grudge? Getting too much attention you thought should be yours? Joel sat up in this cot and put his face between his hands. He started shaking. I thought with sobs and remorse. But when he lifted his head, it was with insane laughter. I did it. I actually did it. I shivered. 
I had dealt with plenty of violent drunks, and even a few domestic violence cases that escalated into murder. But I'd never seen anybody positively ecstatic about taking a life. This was the deep end of things, and I didn't have my certificate to swim there. Yeah, I said, putting my trembling hands behind my back. You sure did. You killed a classmate. I have hundreds of witnesses, and they'll all agree with the both of us. You did it. Why? Joel stopped laughing and seemed suddenly terrified. Why didn't you let me do the rest? Why didn't you let me off myself? Because it's my job to make sure people don't go around dying willy-nilly. Now, I answered yours. You can answer mine. Joel shrugged. I can try. But if you didn't see it, you wouldn't understand. Trying is good enough, I said, glancing at the nasty bruise I'd left on the side of his head. Good, I thought. He deserves worse than that. And if there hadn't been a crowd of people watching, would I have given it to him? I thought I might have, in the moment. That wasn't Louis the Lobster, Joel said. No, I agreed. Because Louis the Lobster isn't real, that was... That wasn't Noah either, said Joel. Oh? Who was it then? Joel shrugged again. Like I said, you wouldn't get it. You didn't see it. You said you'd try. You're in a lot of trouble either way, but if you try, it helps you out. The kid ran his hands through his hair and sighed. All right. You got a smoke? No. Start talking. All right, all right. So, last week, I was hanging out with Noah during lunch period, uh, just sort of wandering the halls, you know, shooting the crap. You two were friends. We were. We were best friends. We were walking and talking, and somehow we passed by the janitor's closet. You ever heard anything about that? I knew about the janitor's closet. There were legends about it back when I was going to Claremont High. And apparently those legends were still hanging around, like ghosts. Sure, I said. The janitor's closet. Nobody's ever been inside except that one kid who was never seen again, or that other kid who was also never seen again. One from every graduating class. Never seen again, and nobody could even remember their names. Spooky stuff. But those are made-up stories. It's just a supply closet that they keep locked so troublemakers don't steal toilet paper. You're dead wrong about that, officer. Uh, I mean, well, that's what I thought, too. That there was nothing supernatural about it. I thought it was funny that everybody was legitimately creeped out by it, so I made a proposal to Noah. We'd come back at night, when everybody was gone, and break into the closet. We'd stage some kind of scary scene and take a bunch of pictures of the two of us. It'd screw with people's heads and maybe get us some popularity for having the balls to go into the janitor's closet. Joel started shaking again, and this time, he was sobbing. God, he wailed. Why did we do it? It's my fault. It was my stupid idea. Any suspicion that the kid was jerking me around vanished, even as I suspect that his story was about to take a turn into the delusional. At least it would be an honest turn. Wait here, I said, then went back to my office for the pack of smokes I kept in a drawer. I'd quit years ago, but on some nights when things in town got ugly, 
and my faith in people got stretched gossamer thin, I still sucked one down. In my office, I took a few moments to check that I had my ringer on, in case somebody was trying to reach me, and then tried to raise the unit I'd sent to the hospital on the radio. When I didn't get a response, I felt a pit start to open up in my stomach, but I forced it closed and headed back to the cell. The kid was talking. I had to keep him talking before he wised up and started asking for a lawyer. I lit a smoke and handed it to Joel through the bars of the cell. He gave me a surprised look, then took it with a trembling hand. After a deep drag, he said, Thank you. I won't tell your parents if you don't. That was another thing. His parents. I hadn't notified them yet, but I would have to do that soon enough. I was surprised they hadn't heard the news already. I wanted Joel's story before they had a chance to get between us. So, anyway, later that day, Noah made an excuse to go down to the school basement. That's where they kept the Louis costume. He said he had to check on something, but I... But really, what he did was unlock one of the windows down there. That night, we rode our bikes over and slipped in through that window. It was so easy. We could have done so many different things instead of what we did. We could have written messages on the chalkboards. Could have screwed with Principal Keeler's office. Anything but the janitor's closet. Joel finished his smoke and dropped it into the dingy toilet with a sizzle. Then he leaned his mouth under the faucet of the sink and there took a quick drink of water. We headed upstairs and down the dark halls, using our phones to light the way. But once we got to the closet, there was another kind of light. A green light, seeping out from the closet. Through the gaps around the door, Noah saw that and wanted to call the thing off. I told him. He choked back a harsh sob and went on. I told him to stop being such a wuss. That the janitor had just left the light on by accident or something. And I went to work on the lock. I'd watched a YouTube video, and after a minute or two, I had it open. I was so proud of myself. Pride goeth before the fall, officer. Pride goeth before the damn fall. We were going to scatter plastic bones and stuff like that around and start taking pictures. That was the plan. But as soon as I opened that door, the green light spilled out. I saw that it was coming from a crack in the wall. At first it was swirling everywhere like a nameless fog but it started to coil together like a snake. Noah started screaming, and the snake of light took his open mouth as a sort of invitation. It worked his way inside of him until it was gone completely. Everything was dark again. I cleared my throat. I don't want to sound insensitive, Joel, but I have to ask. Did you maybe take some pills or smoke a little something before this all happened? Joel shook his head. I'm not going to get high before I do something like this. Break into the school? You crazy? It happened. I saw it. And after that, no one wasn't the same. We got out of there fast, forgetting the stupid prank, and we got back on our bikes. No one made me escort him home. He kept asking what the hell had happened. What the hell had slithered inside of him. I told him I didn't know. Maybe some kind of weird gas leak. I said maybe he should go to the dock for a checkup just to be safe. When he got to his house, we said goodnight and he went inside. He wasn't at school the next day. I kept texting him, but he didn't respond. I pulled out my own phone and checked it again for missed messages. 
No word from anybody. Dang it. But I saw him that night at 1am in my bedroom. I woke up and there he was at the foot of my bed, staring down at me. His eyes were glowing green in the darkness. And before you ask, yeah, I've been smoking a little weed before bed, but jeez, not that much. And I, I tried to scream, but I couldn't even open my mouth, so I tried to tell myself that it's just sleep paralysis, dude, calm down. I couldn't, though. Not when Noah walked over and started stroking my forehead. His touch felt so real and cold. He leaned down and started whispering in my ear. He said, I'm growing stronger again, and soon I'll be everywhere. I'll be in your closet, and I'll be in your mama. I'll be dripping from the faucet, and soon, very soon, my pal, I will drip all over this world and transform it into the screaming hell that it wants to be. Do you see? And I did see. I saw my dad coming home from work. He was covered in blood. I just stabbed his foreman 63 times. He was screaming at my mom, demanding to know what was for dinner. She said he was for dinner and bashed his skull in with a meat tenderizer. See, I watched. Frozen in terror and heard wails outside. Human wails. People moaning in agony and wails of sirens. Cut short as ambulances crashed into each other. Through the window, I could see a green fog overlaying everything. I could see people running down the street with missing limbs, where the flesh flayed from their faces, and other people chasing them, and other people chasing those people, armed with golf clubs, gardening shears, guns. I was a rational man, and believed that at best this was all a fever dream or a bad trip, but still I shivered. So you felt like you had to stop him? I said gently. Yes, I mean, damn! I didn't want to do it. Who wants to shoot their best friend? But that wasn't Noah anymore. That was some... some... Uh, a, a demon or, or something. I don't know what it was. Just that it was evil and it had to be stopped. And nobody would believe me if I went for help. And I know you don't believe me neither. I know I'm screwed. My entire life is screwed. I sighed and lit two more cigarettes. One for him, one for me. I believe that you believe what you're saying, I said. I know it wasn't easy for you to tell me that either, and I appreciate your cooperation. I'm going to call your parents now and tell them what you did, on the off chance that they haven't heard by now. Do you have their number? Joel gave me their number, then sucked on his cigarette in gloomy silence. I left him in his cell. Back in my office, I sat down and waited for the, my heartbeat to slow. Was there some part of me, some little sliver of my lizard brain, that actually believed that crap? If there was, I had to push it aside and focus on the next steps. I'd call Joel's parents, but first I had to know what was happening at the hospital. I tried reaching the boys over the radio. No response. I tried texting Bud, the EMT, but got nothing. The pit in my stomach opened up again, and this time, I couldn't will it shut. I dialed up the hospital and listened to the line ring and ring. I hung up and decided that Joel's parents could wait. I had to find out what the hell was going on, and if nobody would answer, I'd have to haul my ass over there and see the situation with my own eyes. I pushed myself out of the chair. It took an effort, and my knees cracked when I stood. I was getting old and beyond tired. 
As I scooped up my keys, there was a great crash out in the hallway, followed by a harsh scraping sound. Put my hand on the weapon strapped to my hip and hustled to the door, sticking my head into the hallway only to see. Was that a lobster tail? Oh, it was. The door separating the public area of the police station from the holding cells had been shattered apart and the giant tail was disappearing into the darkness left in its wake. I heard Joel scream. I took a deep breath, steadied myself, then broke into a sprint down the hallway toward the cells. I nearly slipped and looked down to see that I was following a trail of green slime. The pit in my stomach turned into a gorge, and then, when I made it to the cells, it opened up into an endless abyss. Louis the Lobster stood tall, with his scaled back facing me, snapping his formidable pincers in the air. Joel was shouting in wide-eyed terror, Shoot it! Shoot it! My mind scrambled to make sense of what I was seeing. Louis the Lobster, mascot for the Claremont Claws, I knew that. My son played for the Claws. Tonight was his first game, and during halftime of that game, I'd watch Joel Clements shoot three bullets into Louis the Lobster, who wasn't really a lobster, but a boy named Noah. And that boy was dead. My EMT friend Bud had told me that. That was right, wasn't it? But if it was right, then what the hell was this thing in front of me, snapping its claws? Shoot it, Joel wailed. Please! I drew my gun, more because I didn't know what else to do than out of any intention of using it. Halt, I said. Put your... Claws? Hands up! Louis ignored my command and began reaching his pincers towards the bars of the cell. Shoot it! Shoot it! Shoot it! But I didn't shoot it. There was a boy in there. He must have somehow survived the bullet wounds. Maybe the lobster costume had dulled their impact, and maybe they had given him some heavy-duty drugs at the hospital that jacked him up and allowed him to break down the door of the holding area. Now he was here to get his revenge on his assailant by frightening him. As improbable as all that seemed, I had to consider that it was possible. And so I couldn't, and wouldn't, shoot him. And after all, Louis couldn't do more than frighten Joel, right? Steel bars stood between them. I said freeze and put your hands up! Louis closed each of his giant claws around four bars and snapped them in half with a metallic crunch. With his wiggling legs, he peeled them aside, creating an opening into the cell. Then he began shuffling inside, as Joel shrank back into a corner. This certainly was all a good argument in favor of shooting Louis. God forgive me, I muttered and pulled the trigger, aiming at Louis's segmented tail. The shot landed and a spurt of green slime oozed out of the wound, but it did nothing to slow Louis down. And then it was too late. Grasping the frightened boy with its legs, Joel let out one final cry as Louis opened a pincer in front of Joel's neck. He said simply, No! Then Louis snapped his claw shut, and Joel's head toppled from his neck and down onto the dingy jail floor in a gush of blood. His body slumped down beside it. I unloaded my clip in a frenzy. Louis jerked with the impact of each shot, flailing his legs, and I was reminded, grotesquely, of his performance at halftime earlier that night. Only here there was no cheering crowd and nothing to celebrate. Louis fell to the ground, supine, next to Joel's body, 
opened his claws one more time, slowly, and then closed them forever. Meanwhile, a hideous maw opened under Louis's twitching antennae, and I recoiled as a green fog began spewing out of it. I kept dumbly pulling the trigger of my gun at the substanceless fog, though the bullets were all spent. In terror, I remembered Joel's story about how the green fog had seeped into Noah's mouth when they had broken into the janitor's closet. I kept my mouth sealed tight and backed down the hallway, but the fog wasn't moving towards me. It drifted over to the sink, swirled around in the basin for a moment, and then shot up and into the faucet. I left that bewildering and gruesome scene in the jail cell and drove unsteadily to the hospital. I felt drunk, though the little whiskey I'd had at the game had worn off long ago. The hospital parking lot was nearly empty, which I took to be a bad sign. The squad car I had sent was parked on the drive, in front of the ER entrance. I pulled him behind it and got out. A man was there, sitting on the curb, clutching at his hair. When he looked up at me with bleary eyes set in a pale face, I recognized him. Bill Larkin, lead reporter for the Claremont Times. Bill, what happened in there? Bill shook his head. I started to make my way past him, but he clutched my pant leg before I could make it inside. Don't, he said. It's my job. I tore free of him. The door slid open for me and I walked inside. I should have listened to Bill. The officers that I had sent there were lying dismembered and scattered, their extremities flung far and mingled with what must have been four to six other bodies. I saw a torso with Bud Greenleaf's ID card clipped to its chest. I saw Martha Blanchard's severed head staring at me in amazement. She'd been the front desk receptionist. I vomited, wiped my chin, then walked back outside to sit next to Bill. I... I was here when it happened, he said. I hit like a coward. No shame in that. You'd be dead if you hadn't. It was... <laughs> You're not going to believe me. It was... I know what it was, I said. It came down to the station after I left here. This should be a national story. Hell, an international story. But if I pitched it, I'd be laughed out of a career. Then don't pitch it. The thing's dead now. It's over. All that's left to do is pick up the pieces. Picking up the pieces wasn't all that easy to do, and as I found out soon enough, the horror was far from over. I spent the rest of the night talking with the families of the dead, doing my best to explain what had happened. Some of them had already heard from the witnesses at the hospital who had seen Louis unleash's terror. Some believed that Noah had been acted upon by some heavy-duty medical-grade drugs, and though I knew that wasn't the truth of it, I didn't try very hard to dissuade them. Some didn't believe my abbreviated account at all at first. They thought I was playing a cruel joke on them. The hardest call was to Joel's parents. They were out of town and weren't even aware of the shooting at the football field. I spoke with his mother, and when she finally understood that her son was dead, the phone carried her wails of grief from one side of the country to the other, and down deep into my gut. News of what had happened spread around town, but no further. Bell didn't even run an article on it in the Claremont Times. There seemed to be an unspoken agreement to treat it as an unexplained tragedy, and nothing more or less than that. The town effectively shut down for a few days in mourning, and when it reopened, 
things were different. At first, I thought the mounting tensions were a result of the shooting at the football field, the massacre at the hospital, the unexplained nature of what had happened at the police station. At Hannaford, people would fill their shopping carts without meeting each other's eyes or saying a word of greeting to folks they'd known and lived next to for years. It was as if they all suspected each other, capable of harboring some unfathomable monster inside. That, I thought, was understandable enough, and I thought that it wouldn't last long. But the tension began to bubble into violence. Fights broke out nightly at Willie's bar and grill. They spilled into the streets and turned into brawls. Somebody threw a brick into the window of Bob's hardware. Car tires were slashed. Garage doors graffitied. Down half of my police force. I worked around the clock trying to keep the peace. Waldo County agreed to send over two men as temporary replacements, but they were weeks out, and until then, I was working 18-hour shifts. Nor did I get much rest when I clocked out. Sleep brought nightmares. Nightmares of giant lobsters crawling through our town, beneath an endless green fog, crushing buildings and people between their monstrous claws. In idle hours awake brought bad memories. Louis' carcass lying next to Joel's decapitated body. That hideous maw opening and spewing forth its evil poison. The violence continued to escalate. It was impossible to keep up with. Somebody burned down the Unitarian church. People I had grown up with snarled at me, spat at me and called me a pig. My nerves were raw and I started to feel like I might snap too. You need some time off, Linda said last night after work. This is eating you alive. Why don't we go somewhere for a week? Can't, I said, pouring a whiskey. I looked at the glass for a moment, reminding myself that I had to be careful with that stuff. I'd seen it get its hooks into too many people, like my old man. Two drinks, I promised myself. Two drinks. I slammed the first one down. I know you think it's your duty to single-handedly save the world, but it's really not, Gary. And I'm scared. Something crazy is happening here. It's like there's something in the water. I was in the middle of fixing my second drink when she said that. I froze, and whiskey kept pouring over the edge of the glass and onto the counter. Until Linda gently took my hand and lifted the bottle. Gary, she said, you're not well. Like there's something in the water. In the jail cell, when Louia died, the fog hadn't come after me. It had gone into the sink faucet. The thing had told Joel, I'll be dripping from the faucet, and soon, very soon, my pal, I will drip all over this world and transform it into the screaming hell that it wants to be. We were a few miles out of town and had our own water well. So did our neighbors, and as the thoughts tore through my wrecked brain, I realized that the violence and vandalism was mostly contained to the city limits, despite the fact that just as many people within the town limits lived outside of the city. So it was in the city water pipes. It had slipped into the faucet in the jail cell, swam against the pressure, found the main line, spread out, splitting a part of itself off at each branch, flowing into each home, pouring out of shower heads, out of kitchen faucets, into cooking pots into drinking glasses. I did a desperate mental calculation, trying to remember if I'd ingested any city water since it had started. We had a commercial water jug at the police station. Did Darlene use that water, or tap water to make the coffee? 
Oh, I didn't know. Had I gone to the diner and ordered a glass of tap water? I didn't think so. Where else? Honey, I said, I want you to think carefully. Have you drank any city water recently? What? I was kidding about there being something in the water. I know, but I think there actually is. So think. Maybe at Claire's house? Didn't you go there the other day? What? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I went to Claire's on Monday for our book club, but nobody else showed up. Claire wasn't even there, so I left. Okay, okay, good. Think. Anywhere else you might have had some water. I don't know, Gary. You're scaring me. I took a deep breath and looked at my wife. I didn't think that she was infected. She was worried, but had been almost supernaturally patient with me. The infected weren't patient. Bran, I called. He's at a friend's, said Linda. Then her eyes got wide. Oh no! She scooped her phone off the kitchen island and called our son. She held the phone to her ear for a while and finally shook her head. He's not answering. Where is he? She told me, and I was off. Cedar Street was mayhem. A group of teenagers overturning a parked car on the side of the road. I slowed as I passed them, shining my flashlight out the window, looking for Brandon. He wasn't with them. Screw the police, one of them shouted. He flipped me off and I kept driving, past an old man kicking a dog, past a pile of leaves burning on the sidewalk, past a tree with figures hanging from it that were, I hoped, dummies, rather than human beings with burlap sacks over their heads. Finally, I reached number 88. As I pulled up to the curb, I saw that the large bay window jutting out from the front of the house was shattered, and there was a body lying on the ground among the broken glass in the flower bed. It looked to be a woman. I got out of the car, with my hand on my weapon, and slowly approached the body. Heavy music blasted through the broken window, and I heard something smash inside. Ma'am? I said. She didn't respond. I could see now that it was Tina Godfrey. Brandon's friend's mother. I reached down and felt for her pulse. She was cold and dead. I walked around and tried the front door, terrified of what I might find inside. It was unlocked. Inside, the music was so loud that it hurt my ears, and I was hit with a horrible stench that almost made me spill back up the whiskey, along with the hamburger I had had for lunch. Brandon, I shouted. You in here, buddy? The overhead lights were off but I saw a flicker coming from a room at the end of the hall. A strobe light. That was also where the music was coming from. I crept towards it, drawing my gun and trying to steady my nerves. Brandon! Brandon stuck his head out of the room. Pops! he yelled. Come join the fun! Are you okay? I asked, getting closer to him. What happened to Mrs. Godfrey? That wasn't me. That was Jason! He laughed. Through his own mother of the window. Can you believe that? And where is Jason now? He's in here. Come on in. I was close enough now that I could see my son's face as the intermittent light hit it. He was covered in blood, and he was grinning like a maniac. Do you want to try some pops? He asked, before bringing an arm out of the room and showing it to me. It wasn't his arm. It was severed at the elbow and had several bites taken out of it. I didn't know what to do. God help me, I didn't know what to do. I told you, Pops. Told you once and I'll tell you once again. The world is an inch away from being a screaming hell. And we're going to give it that last little nudge. Aren't we, Pops? Just a little nudge. That's all it takes. 
He sunk his teeth into the severed arm and pulled away a chunk of flesh. I turned away, thought about just leaving him there, going home and telling Linda that he was dead, that we had to get far, far away, fast. Then I thought about actually killing him, so that it wouldn't be a lie. For a second I thought about killing my own son. Even if that wasn't really my son anymore. Drop the arm and put your hands up in the air, I said. What are you going to do, Pops? Arrest me? He laughed, but did as instructed. I approached slowly, pointing my gun at him with one hand and fumbling for the cuffs with the other. I got them and dangled them in front of him. Put these on, I said. Or what, Pops? You going to shoot me? You don't have the balls. I bit my lip and shot him in the foot. It'd be a long time before he played football again. He dropped to the ground and howled in pain and rage, and I slipped the gun into my holster and slapped the cuffs on him. Oh, he said, smiling now. Kinky! I grabbed the cuffs by the chain and dragged him down the hall as he snapped his teeth and spat blood at me. We made it outside and I thunked my son down the concrete steps and scraped him along the walkway until we got to the squad car. I threw him in the back then got in the driver's seat and drove home sobbing as he told me about how much he was going to enjoy eating me alive. Back at the house I went inside and gave Linda a partial account of what had happened. While Brandon squirmed in the back of the squad car, I argued that we should keep Brandon in the basement, tied up and possibly gagged, until we could figure out what to do. She refused to allow that, so I told her about the cannibalism. That's where our son is now, tied to a chair in the basement. Linda agreed to the gag too, after hearing the evil filth pouring out of his mouth for a few hours. As for me, I went to the computer and started typing up this account. I thought that maybe somebody would read it and be able to help us. Maybe somebody knows what this thing is and how to stop it. That was my hope. But just as I was coming to the end, I got a text message from Darlene, the dispatcher assistant at the station. It said, What did you think of the coffee yesterday? I tried something new. Made it with tap water. My vision started to waver as another message came through. We'll see you very soon in hell, Chief.